This week's TribCast is sponsored by Raise Your Hand Texas. Raise Your Hand Texas presents For the Future, a series of candidate forums leading up to the 2022 primary election. Visit raiseyourhandtexas.org vote to find a forum near you. And Lone Star College. Lone Star College plays a key role in developing a skilled workforce to keep the Texas economy strong. Find out more at lonestar.edu. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for January 28th, 2022. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News and Politics for the Tribune. Today I'm joined by Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief Abby Livingston. Hey, Abby. Hi. And Health and Human Services reporter Karen Brooks-Harper. Hey, Karen. Hey. Thank you all for joining us. So, Abby, we are now, if my math is right, and it rarely is, 32 days out from the March primary this year. And this month, we kind of received a startling development in one of the races that has potential to kind of be the most high profile in Texas this year. Uh, Last week, the home and office of U.S. Rep. Henry Cuellar was raided, were raided by the FBI. The raid uh, raised a lot of questions, including... What is the FBI looking for? What kind of potential problems does Quayar face? How could this affect the, you know, what, what, what I think a lot of people had seen as a potentially competitive primary, both in the Democratic primary and also in the general election? Um, I want to talk about kind of all those things with you here today. But first, can you just kind of start us off with a little bit of a what we know and don't know at this point about what's going on here with Quayar and the FBI? Yeah, and I have to emphasize uh, don't know, because we yeah. don't know a lot. And um, at a basic level, what we know is Henry Cuellar, FBI agents were seen raiding his uh, home, and uh, at least his home. I don't know if they were physically seen in his office, um, and campaign office, which is a big, big uh, thing we have to clarify for a mm-hmm. lot of reasons. Um, and so we know from an ABC report from uh I believe Mike Levine, who I have known a very long time, and uh, he's a great reporter, and he, uh, ABC News has seen a subpoena. This has something to do with an ex-Soviet republic called Azerbaijan that has a checkered history on corruption and human rights, and uh, and so it's, it's, it's a very convoluted, mysterious situation. But what I think is the story I'm working on right now is trying to understand the timing of this because um, I've, I've got so many statements of Department of Justice officials emphasizing over the years they don't like to do these sorts of things, public displays of you know, implicit incrimination like a raid uh, when so close to an election. And so while the primary is close, early voting is even closer. And so there are voters in this Laredo-based district who are going to soon be going to the polls with this very fresh on their minds. And because we know so little, Cuellar is not really in a position to defend himself. Um, It is as toxic of a situation as possible. We don't know what happened or what this is about. Um, And this has happened before. It happens to Republican members, Democratic members. um, And sometimes these cases get thrown out. And uh, so the central question is why at this time? And there's much, much speculation. But 
I think what has concerned some folks is, uh, you know, a congressman could lose his seat over this and we don't even know why. And the context of the race is he is in a very competitive primary against a challenger from his left, Jessica Cisneros, who's an attorney. And uh, she's very well funded. She ran last year and almost defeated him. And, uh, and then that seat could be competitive in the fall and Democrats uh, really have not had an opportunity to look at this as an open seat situation in, in that context. And they couldn't recruit, they didn't have time because of filing to recruit anyone else who might be able to run for this seat. So it is a very messy, messy situation. Right. Cuellar, you know, one of the more interesting members of the Texas delegation in Congress, a well-known as kind of a more moderate Democrat, right? Uh, not many moderates in Congress these days, but he is definitely one of them. Uh, very willing to be outspoken at times or buck the party line. You know, he's been critical of Biden's immigration policies in 2021, for instance. Um, and that, of course, is one of the big reasons that he brought or he's, you know, the target of one of these big primary challenges. And, and, and we've seen, you know, some national kind of progressive groups going after him even before this, this raid happened. Um, we should also note, I think that he, um, you know, is, is proclaiming innocence in this. He put out a, a statement um, earlier this week saying, you know, basically this is an ongoing investigation, quote, that will show that there is no wrongdoing on my part. I pride myself on being your congressman and always doing things honestly, ethically in the right way. We don't even necessarily even know that he's a target of the investigation. Um, we just know that he's right. been raided by the FBI. Of course, it's never a great look to have your offices and homes raided by the FBI uh, either way. You know, I wanna, I wanna go back to a little bit to the Azerbaijan connection here, which we don't know exactly what that is, but you had a very interesting story earlier this week about the ties that Cuellar has had to that country, you know, for a pretty long time here. Can you tell us a little bit about what those ties are, what that relationship is like? Yeah, beginning in the around 2013, he, he enjoyed a very close alliance with uh, folks looking to promote the Azerbaijani cause to Congress. And this is extremely uh, tense and um, interesting at the same time. Uh, this is a country that has occasionally, or, off and on been at war with Armenia, which has an even more powerful lobby in Washington. And so members of Congress kind of choose which side they're going to be on this. But at the same time, it's not like this. So there is an Azer congressional Azerbaijan caucus and a number of Texans are on there. And the speculation is that they that Azerbaijan has a lot of oil and that is attractive to Texans as a cause to want to support the exploration of oil. Um, but at the same time, uh, my sense is a lot of people signed up for this caucus, not really thinking it through. Cuellar is a completely different story. He has, he helped start a overseas trip to Azerbaijan for students and college students in Laredo through the Texas A&M International University. Um, he has uh, had close relationships with uh, the leader of the nonprofit who paid for some of these trips. Um, he has been there with his wife. Um, and so it is a very interesting and strange case. And uh, some of my sources warned me ahead of time, this is a weird case. <laughs> yeah, you know, I thought it was interesting that you, in your story, you talked about how sometimes 
a, being a member of a caucus can mean a very active, you know, attending meetings. You, you mentioned the Congressional Black Caucus in there, which is, of course, a very influential uh, group in Congress right now. You know, other caucuses like this, it's maybe sometimes even just as simple as kind of signing your name. And, and that's that's the extent of it. Of course, you know, he has been involved uh much beyond that and, and has shown a particular interest in that country. So, you know, we'll see what happens. Uh, I, I think a lot of it will have to just kind of wait and see when, if and when the next shoe drops and, and if that happens between now and February 14th or, or March 1st when the primary actually happens. Let's talk a little bit about the politics of this. This is, I mean, how would you have assessed this race before this raid happened? And, and how, if at all, has that calculus changed now that we're talking about, you know, an FBI raid here? So there's, uh, there's two ways these races tend to go in a primary. This is, first of all, a rematch. And Cuellar got quite a scare last year. I believe Cisneros was only four points behind uh, in the primary in 2020. Um, I would have looked at it and said, this could go two ways. One, uh, she, it is just this slow moving march of ousting him, which is what sometimes happens in these rematches. The challenger gets close, comes back, learns lessons, raises more money and is able to defeat the incumbent or the opposite happens. The incumbent is kind of napping and sleepy and doesn't really take the challenge seriously. They get a scare and then they hustle the next two years to be prepared. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's that, uh, this also plays into the fact that South Texas is the most interesting place in Texas politics right now. Republicans made inroads in 2020 and they are absolutely targeting this seat. It got a little bit better in redistricting for Henry Cuellar or for the district for Democrats, I guess is the way I should say it. And uh, there is a an argument to be made that Cisneros is too liberal for this district. Her team will push back on it. And there is an entire theory on the Democratic liberal side that if you starts, you know, stoke enthusiasm, you can over, you know, you don't need to be moderate. So um, I think it's to be determined, but this is very in flux. I will also say that it, when a member comes under a cloud like this, that doesn't mean they're going to lose. Um, yeah. I've seen many, many members of Congress breeze through re-election. Voters are patient often. They want to hear the facts uh, or they just really like the person. So I think yeah. there, I can't even underscore enough how many unknowns are here. We yeah. have- Whites that are <laughs> that are elected time and again <laughs> That's right. over their heads. Well, of course, yeah, our uh, our attorney general right now, of course, is under indictment. He has already won re-election while under indictment. He is now the subject of a federal investigation, which um, you know, in somewhat of a similar place with this, our agriculture commissioner, for example, his uh, top political aide was just uh, indicted um, on uh, you know bribery charges and things like that. So, you know, Next I think we can giving sometimes yeah so maybe it, maybe it's a boost who knows you know in the world we live in now so uh definitely it'll be interesting to see i mean i'm fascinated i was already fascinated by this race you know for reasons that we have already mentioned of course you know Cuellar, sort of a a vanishing breed in congress right you just don't see many people who who kind of are willing to go against the party line in any direction here um and then this was a race that um in a district that, well, Cuellar's district last time in 2020 was he, uh, Trump lost by five percentage points, right? There has since been a redistricting cycle. They piled 
a few more kind of Democratic voters into this district as they were targeting other members of Congress down around the border and things like that. It is now a district that, that as it is currently drawn, Trump would have lost by 7%. So that's like one of those you look at and you think, all right, well, that's, that's kind of borderline in terms of how competitive it will be. But 2022 is not looking like a great year for Democrats in general. So it might be kind of a stretch target. But now, as you mentioned, this, this kind of just completely unsettles things because you know, what we're really possibly talking about here, assuming that this doesn't get resolved by November, which maybe is too strong of an assumption, but you're either talking about a, a more progressive, very liberal newcomer in this district running on the Democratic ticket or a member of Congress who, you know, ha had his house raided by the FBI. And frankly, even if he doesn't, even if he does overcome this or does not get charged or anything like that, that's not something you like to have on your kind of resume or in your clips there. And so, I mean, I think there's a lot that could kind of happen here to kind of change this and it'll be fascinating to watch. Well, and I think there's um, two other factors to think about that are just interesting to me. I've covered politics in other states. Indictments and, and raids and things like that, and to be clear, Cuellar has not been indicted, but this sort of stuff is kind of normal in some states, at least at the federal level. It's not that normal in Texas. I, 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 I mean, members of Congress it just don't seem to get into trouble or get under scrutiny like this. The other thing that makes the district vulnerable, and it goes with the other South Texas districts that Republicans are targeting, this has a ch cheap media market. San Antonio is expensive, but Laredo's not. And when Republicans have this pot of money in the fall and they're looking where to go, they probably would be more likely to go after this seat than a Los Angeles-based one or a New Jersey-based one where it would cost millions and millions of dollars to just flood the airwaves and define your candidate and define your opponent. So that kind of moves the entire region up the priority level for Republicans if it's a bad Democratic year and Republicans are looking to expand. Yeah, it's also just a place that Republicans, it, it has. I feel like it carries maybe a exaggerated value compared to just one seat, right? Like it's a place that Republicans would really like to continue to develop and grow this narrative that their strength is gaining here. You know, it's a largely Hispanic population down there, but it's also in a lot of ways, a conservative area. And, you know, to be able to pick off some seats there to win some, I think would really, they would really like to be able to kind of brag about that, tout that as, you know, a lot of Democrats are trying to paint them as a, you know, fairly exclusively white party, uh, you know, nationally and things like that. So Republicans are as excited about South Texas as Democrats were two and four years ago about the Texas suburbs. That's right. I, I think the enthusiasm is equitable. Well said, well said. Abby, while we've got you here, you know, there are a bunch of other, of course, congressional races on the on the docket this year. What else is kind of catching your eye about a month out from from primary day? Well, um, the two race. Well, I wrote a piece earlier this week on the race to replace Eddie Bernice Johnson, and it's becoming an interesting race because these people all have known each other for years and have long waited for this seat to be open. And so it kind of feels like a family fight within the Dallas Democratic establishment. And so um, I recommend reading that story. 
I think the other one that I'm interested in, and we have many races, but um, is my hometown of Fort Worth. Uh, Kay Granger has another rematch against uh, the same kind of situation as Cuellar. Um, and it ties to Cuellar in this. If Republicans take control of the U.S. House next year, Kay Granger will be the House Appropriations Chairwoman. And that is the best job on Capitol Hill um, and extremely powerful. But she and John Carter are 79 or over, the two Republican appropriators. And then there's, uh, well, there's another Republican appropriator, Tony Gonzalez, also of South Texas, and Henry Cuellar. There's a very real chance Tony Gonzalez could be the most senior appropriator in a couple of years. And that we're talking four, six years. These are things, these are committees you need to spend decades building seniority. And I'm very worried about the state of Texas's position of power when it comes to deciding how to spend federal money if Henry, Henry Cuellar is not there and Kay Granger is not there. Yeah, it's kind of an unfamiliar place for Texas to be in. You know, they've all been able to exert such influence in Congress for, you know, for generations, really. To, to this goes back to LBJ. And I think that we're in this situation shows it no longer has strong, the delegation does not have strong leadership in the whether you love them or hate them as Tom DeLay and other figures like that in the past who were really, really strategic about these kinds of things. All right, let's take a, a break to hear from our sponsors. South by Southwest EDU. Join us at South by Southwest EDU 2022 for hundreds of inspiring sessions and unique opportunities to connect with education thought leaders. Find out more at sxswedu.com. And Episcopal Health Foundation. From financial hardship to experience with severe illness, Episcopal Health Foundation's latest statewide survey shows how COVID-19 continues to affect Texans in many different ways. Find it now at EpiscopalHealth.org. Okay, so Karen, we are back. It's time for another. We've been doing this a lot lately. Updates on the Omicron and the coronavirus situation. Uh, It is uh, lunchtime on Friday, late Yesterday, you had a story with a couple other Tribune reporters about how Texas ICU bed availability has been has reached kind of its lowest number since the pandemic basically began. Um, I think a lot of us were hoping that we were getting to a point where we'd be moving past these types of headlines, as you know, expecting us to kind of have that wave of Omicron cases recede by late January. What what's happening here? Is is it is it not going as we'd hoped? Well, I think a primary indicator is how often you have me on the TribCast. If, if, if months go by without calling me to be here, then things are going fine, you know. Um, not trying to make light of it, of course, but it's uh, it's good to be here talking about it again because it, it, we are in a, a different spot than we were, you know, a year ago in terms of the pandemic. Um, we're... we're Nationally, it looks like the Omicron is starting to, you know, roll back from its crest a little bit. Um, the numbers that were concerning everybody a few weeks ago are starting to level off and go down. In Texas, we're seeing a similar trend, although not as, you know, we're still a few weeks behind the national in terms of, you know, being able to say that we've peaked and certainly our deaths are still climbing. Um, our hospitalizations, our daily hospitalization totals are in the mid 13,000s, which our record is 14,218 in mid-January a year ago. And that is for the number of uh, um, hospitalizations. Um, and then the deaths are um, approaching 80,000. 
Yeah, you know, we, we, we had talked about how there had been projections that we would break kind of the hospitalization record for COVID. Um, and now I think, you know, there, it, 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 at least the growth has slowed down, if not completely leveled off and, and started to decline to a point where we may not reach that point. We'll have to see. But um, I mean, one of the challenges here and the reasons the beds are less available is because of the strain that the hospitals have been facing over the past you know, almost 24 months, you know, we're, we're getting close on that, that two year anniversary for, for this pandemic, right? So, you know, it seems to be a combination, right, of, of another surge and just the combined impact of all these surges on our healthcare infrastructure. Yeah, the, the available beds are in ICU or at a pandemic low. Um, and that is, in large part because of the sheer numbers of Omicron infections are just kind of raising all the levels anyway, but also the fact that there's a staffing shortage um, that is reducing the number of beds that would be available even with there wasn't a, a coronavirus, you know, just the total number of staffed beds is, is down because there's a crisis and that's going to be a long-term problem. Um, it's not something that can just be fixed with a bunch of tribal nurses. There's just so much more to it than that. Yep. Yeah. Well, you know, the uh, the Omicron surge surge has arrived in the Watkins house, for example, as I am currently the only member of my family of four who has not had it yet. So uh, I'm expecting to probably any day now be that next uh, next member of, you know, that next number on our data tracker. Although, you know, fortunately, we are all vaccinated. Thank you, vaccines, for keeping us all with mild symptoms and everything like that. So. And what we're learning um, is that the Omicron, if you have three boosts, I mean, the two shots and the booster, it's about a 90% reduction in the hospitalization rate. Yeah. Um, whereas with two shots, it's more like a 55, 60% reduction in the hospitalization, hospitalization rate. So, you know, it's a it's a decidedly higher benefit according to the science to get the booster, but they both will keep you out of the hospital, which is really the point. Sure. Um, or are like you know, likelier to keep you out of the hospital than than you know with Delta. They are very much um, uh, they're they're very good. Um, yep. Active against Omicron. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So where do we go from here? I mean, you know. It, we seem to be in a high transmission point. Is it any sense of how the next couple of weeks, months will play out? Um, so they're not really sure how stable Omicron natural, natural immunity is. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that has been leading the White House and some of the other places to, to declare, hey, you know, we're going to be doing, becoming an endemic soon, which means we'll be, it'll be just like kind of a flu thing and we can all get back to normal this summer. You're starting to hear that kind of real simple messaging coming out of the White House um, about it and kind of on the, you know, on the circuit um, and the media too. Um, and, you know, what some of the, you know, the experts from Texas are pointing out is that, um, you know, there could be another summer wave. There could mm -hmm. be another variant or the people that aren't vaccinated still at that point and think they're immune because of Omicron in January may be vulnerable again in June. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of um, kind of uncertainty about where we'll be in the summertime, which sounds familiar now that I've stayed up. Uh, 
you know, maybe we'll just start, uh, you know, playing old clips from you. You know, we can have like a robot uh, Karen that will. Uh... <laughs> I've already written that we can just. Exactly. Um, yeah. But, you know, in the next few weeks, we're going to see we're going to see the hospitalizations peak and go down if if current indicators hold. Right. Um, and uh, and we're going to and we've already started seeing the cases, the daily cases drop. The daily deaths, seven-day average, I think, or the daily, the daily reported deaths. I'm sorry. Um, hopefully, I didn't bungle those number, bungle those names early. I think I straightened about it at some point in that list of numbers I gave you. But um, you know, the deaths are well below our record, um, which were several hundred a day a year ago, and we're 200. We're close to 300 a day now, still, according to our tracker. Um, but we're not at the record yet. Uh, 234 new deaths were reported. Uh, on the 27th of January, um, and that's still it's a lot. You know, we're gonna we're gonna hit 80,000 uh, at some point in the near future, um, and we're not gonna see those peak for you know a couple weeks after hospitalizations start to decline. That's kind of how it works. Um, first, the cases go up, and the hospitalizations go up, and the deaths go up, and then everything starts going down at pretty much the same schedule. And we're a couple weeks behind the national. Um, so if you look at the national, we've already kind of hit the peak. We've already kind of hit the hospitalizations peak, the daily hospitalizations peak. And by what I mean by that is the number of Texans on any given day who are hospitalized and positive for COVID-19, which is an important distinction. Um, it doesn't mean that COVID-19 sent all these people to the hospital. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a safe bet that it did a significant chunk of them. And that, but with Omicron, it's thrown a little question into some, some of it just because the line is gray as to where the virus actually exacerbates the pre-existing condition. So are you in there for the diabetic coma? Would you even have had it if you hadn't had COVID or, you know, it's a, it's kind of a weird gray area, but, um, but the hospitalizations will uh, have already started peaking in state, uh, a couple of areas of the state um, and, uh, and are likely to, to level off and start declining probably in the next week if the numbers hold. So oh. that's what we can look for. And South yeah. Southwest is still on as far as I know. So I don't know what the spring will look like. <laughs> there you go. Well, hopefully the next time we have you on, it will be to uh, to be talking about how how much the numbers have come down and, and the good news that will come along. That's thank you. Trend. You know, that seems to be the trend. So that's right. That's right. All right. Well, thank you, Karen. Thank you, Abby. That is um, enough for us for this week. Uh, thank you to our sponsors, Raise Your Hand Texas, Lone Star College. South by Southwest EDU and the Episcopal Health Foundation. We'll talk to you next week. Do